This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Right here. My goodness. Anyway, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, We're here for an event with Michelle Faber. Michelle was born in Holland and brought up in Australia, but we like to think of him as a Scottish author because he moved here with his wife, Eva, in 1993, and an extraordinary series of novels started to flow from his pen, the latest being the book of Strange New Things. But it's as a poet we meet him here this evening. His wife, Eva, died in July 2014, and a searing and beautiful sequence of poems came to him, now published as Undying, a love story. And the plan for this evening is that I'll invite him to read um, probably up to about eight poems and have a little, he'll say something about the circumstances surrounding them. Um, And then I'll leave a bit of time for you to come in, either to ask for a poem or to ask a question. That's the plan anyway, but the best laid plans often gang a glee. But anyway, please welcome Michelle Faber. Had Richard got his way, it would have been about 12, 13 poems. Yes. And you wouldn't have had any time at all. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It might even be that, but please welcome Michelle Faber. We shall begin with the poem Lucky um, and tell us a bit about how you met Eva and give us a little of your history together. And you can do it in any order you like, the poem first, then the story or whatever. Um, My first marriage broke up and I was living with my best male friend and I realized I needed to, to live on my own. So I applied for um, a room in a shared household, a student household in Melbourne, and each room had a different student in it. And I wasn't a student, but needed a space. And the person who'd been selected to interview prospective tenants to see if they were okay was Eva, uh, because she had a room in this household as well. And um, she interviewed me and thought I was suitable. (laughs) For various things, yeah. Uh, Well, uh, it it was quite a long time before I had a number of intimate conversations with her because she was at that time married uh, and living most of the time in a leafy outer suburb of of Melbourne um, with her then husband and her very, very young children. They were babies then. And um, when that marriage collapsed, uh, we, we got together. Give us lucky. Yeah. Um, it's a strange event, this, because, of, of course, we're, we're celebrating um, this extraordinary woman and, and a love, but the, the poems are very hard. Um, so I just hope you'll be all right with them. It's called Lucky. In late 88, not knowing how lucky I was, I met a woman who would die of cancer. I looked into her eyes and did not see the dark blood that would fill them when the platelets were all spent. All I saw was hazel irises, keen intelligence, a lick of mascara on the lashes she would lose. I thrilled to the laugh that pain would quell admired the slender neck before it swelled. And when she gave herself to me, I laid my cheek against a cleavage not yet scarred by Venus catheters. Tenderly, I stroked the hair, which was, at that stage, still her own. I spread her legs, put weight upon her ribcage. Without a worry, this might break her bones. I'd gaze, enchanted, at her naked back, the locus for the biopsies to come. Hurrying to meet her in the street, I'd smile with simple pleasure just to glimpse my darling who would gladly swallow pesticide for her future drug regime. I ran the last few steps to hug her, squeezing her arms, laying on the pressure, innocent of the bruises this might inflict one day. 
Hand in hand we walked, and I was proud to have this destined cancer victim by my side. I kissed her mouth and tasted only sweet, untainted yes. She was lucky too, back then in 88. As long as she would live, she loved my body, ignorant of what it held and what it holds in store for me. The skin she fondled took pity, withheld from her its vilest secrets, withholds them still for now maintains the smooth facade on which on our first night she shyly laid her palms, her lips, her breast, her brow. I should just explain before we go on that the, the images being projected there are from Eva's photographs and, and artworks that she produced in the last six years of her life after diagnosis. Let's, um, let's think about your, you both had um, an interesting religious history. Um, tell us a bit about that and then read Of Old Age in Our Sleep with its wonderful opening line, although there is no God, let us not leave off praying. I love that line, it's kind of personal to me. So um, tell us a little bit about that side of your life together uh, and what happened. Well. Eva and I both came from pretty intense faiths. Uh, I grew up a Baptist, and she was a Jehovah's Witness when she was younger. And um, she was a witness until she was about 20, 21, and then her mother died very horribly of cancer, and that broke her faith. Um, and she tried to leave the movement, but the way it works with the witnesses is that you, you can't leave. They have to kick you out. They disfellowship you, as the term is. So um, she was cut off from all her family. Uh, she basically no longer had a family. Uh, they had all been witnesses. So we, we were both bereft of that earlier faith. But, and we were both atheists, but, but unlike many atheists of the sort of Richard Dawkins stamp. We, we always remained interested in religion and in the, the positive potentials of faith, what it does for people, and I've tried to reflect that in, in my mm. work. Mm. Give us that poem. Of old age in our sleep. Although there is no God, let us not leave off praying, for words in solemn order may yet prove to be a charm. Sickness swarms around us, scheming harm, plotting our ruin behind our back. Let us pray we may escape attack. We do not fear to die, to ebb away. What we fear is endless days of torture, forced intimacy with a body that is not our own, carnal knowledge of our cunning abuser, our disease, who fears no medicine and hears no pleas. Let us leave, not leave off praying. Let us keep our dream close to our heart, that life is too high-principled to linger when it should depart. Yes, let us not leave off praying, not for God our soul to keep, but just to die of old age in our sleep. One of the things that moved and impressed me about the book um, was what it disclosed about your relationship with the medical profession. I mean, you kind of lived with with doctors and oncologists and all sorts of medical technicians um, and it was quite a complicated relationship and there's actually quite a, a devastating poem on page 15 his hands were shaking so tell us about that and about the general experience you had of this long struggle and your encounter with those who in their way were all trying to help well Different people deal with a terminal illness in different ways, and there are, there are people who never, ever want to hear the word cancer mentioned, and they go through their entire cancer journey without that word being uttered. 
And if that's what those people need, then I respect that. Eva was the sort of person who wanted to know everything. She studied multiple myeloma. She became an expert on it. And she read lots and lots of, of scholarly papers on the latest advances in the field of treating multiple myeloma, which of course meant that she then became scary to some doctors who felt threatened mm. by a patient who knows stuff. And particularly within the NHS, where there is pressure to save money, not doing various tests, um, there was tension there. And looking back on it, I'm not sure how much benefit she got from knowing so much about her disease. I suspect that her erudition in that area might have given her an extra year of life in that she was very aware of of the the treatment options but that extra year of life contained an awful lot of suffering mm -hmm. and it might have been kinder if she'd lived a year less but not seen her body ruined to the extent that it was by the disease i mean that's not for me to say i i i don't know she lived six years, which is average for multiple myeloma. Um, there are lots of people who die within three months, and there are others who live 20 years, and you, you know, take an mm. average of that. Um, so yes, she, she, she had the journey that felt right to her. What about your feelings? Um, I'm all about quality of life. Mm -hmm and her quality of life towards the end was hideously compromised. Mm. But she was a mother and she was very concerned about her children, one of whom is very, very troubled and I think she wanted to stay around mm. for him. Um, so it was not for me to say, look, mm. shall we just stop carpet bombing your system mm. with mm. poison? Um, it, was, it was her call, it was her mm. body. Mm. Um, I was just there to share that, that, mm. that journey with her. And this, this poem um, is about an or based on an encounter that she had with the first of her hematologists um, in, in Inverness. His hands were shaking. The hematologist who lifted up your dress and took the sample from your spine. Also, he blinks too often. You want to tell him, look, this blinking isn't helping. Either close your eyes or keep them open. It would be nice to think his tremble was distress at causing pain to one so beautiful and in her prime, and not from drink. In time, when these appointments grow routine, You'll pray the secretarial roulette assigns you to a different member of the team. In time, the trembling blinker will retire, vanish unannounced and overnight, and you will never have to sit him down and say, Hey, listen, I've been thinking about the shaking and the blinking, and maybe you and I are just not right for each other. Eva was a beautiful woman. Uh, I remember that very well myself. And you write implacably about how the cancer stole her beauty. Um, there's a devastating poem right there on the floor. Um, tell us about that experience and as you read the poem. Um, Eva was an enormously vital woman and very sexy um, and very comfortable in her body. She wasn't someone who worried about the wrong, you know, I'm the wrong shape, this bit isn't right. She was, she was happy that she'd been given that body. And the cancer, of course, robs you of that. And she had particularly lovely hair um, and this poem uh, is about her and me and that hair. 
In our 26 years together, we did some mighty intimate stuff. But I don't believe we ever pushed it further than the time you sat stripped to the waist on a chair in our bedroom, me standing behind you with scissors in my hand, you looking straight ahead at the Edinburgh rooftops saying, do it, just do it. And those locks of limp dark hair that still remained plastered to your pale and chemo-blasted skull. I took them in my fingers, lifted them, and meticulously desexed you. You moved to um, a station house in Fern um, in, the, in the Highlands, um, and the trains still go through the... the they do, do they stop? Oh, yeah. They yeah, stop yeah. there. Yeah. Um, uh, and there's a poem, uh, such a simple thing I could have fixed. Um, read it for us and tell us something about the life you had there. I'll read the poem first. Mm -hmm. um, we were mess pots, the pair of us, marooned up there in fern, and allowed our place to turn into a hoarder's den a car boot sale of things undone. Unread books clogged up the halls. Unworn jackets faded in the sun. Orphaned shoes fell out of shelves. Cupboards bulged with bump and bric-a-brac, all to be sorted later, later. While in the wardrobes, moths indulged themselves in wads of knitwear bundled in the back. Dust bunnies slept under radiators, rarely swept and almost never mopped. Magazines grew gently antiquated. <coughs> Endless rolls of toilet paper, all half-used. Clothes, unwashed and washed, confused, lay piled on top of what was once the bed of a now long-departed child. His ruined socks remained, and cat puke, vintage, dry, sat undiscovered in our cosy sty. We had not always been so careless, but when illness came, we went into retreat, into a space inside our heads we tried hard to keep neat, while other things degenerated. Time was short, and we had better things to do than clean. Instead, we concentrated on the contents of one room, me and you. You read and wrote and drew and waited for changes, good or evil, in your flesh. And I would organize your pills and regularly refresh the linen on your bed. This much I managed, though the colors never were coordinated, purple, cream, and several shades of red. I never asked you if you minded. Perhaps the color clashes caused you pain. Unmatching bedsheets as you drifted towards your ultimate lowering of standards, your loss of all you owned. Such a simple thing I could have fixed. Um, there was a, a point in the journey we took together where Eva had a remission from a stem cell transplant. This was 2009. She had the transplant late in 2008. And by 2009 she was relatively well and clearly she was going to live some years yet. And at that point I, I had been so horrified at what had happened to her during the transplant and I'd been so stressed and I'd been flying off the handle and punching walls and, and just generally not coping and I said that we should separate that this was her chance to find someone who could be there for her when she really needed someone to be there for her um, I was convinced that by the time she was very vulnerable and frail and dying 
I would be so stressed and out of control that I would let her down exactly at that crucial time. And I said, this is your chance. You could find someone who, who could be there for you, who could be strong. And she wanted us to stay together, and we did stay together. And it was very, very difficult for a while. And then the, s the weird thing was, once she became very, very ill, and really, really needed me. Um, I somehow found it in myself to be that person. And I think this is often what religion does. It externalizes that. People say, I was weak. I just didn't have it in me. I appealed to that higher power. And God gave me the strength to do this. Um, I can't believe in God, but some, somewhere I found what was needed in, in, that, mm. in that situation. And the sicker she got, the more tender our relationship became, the more trusting. And it became a positive feedback loop that the more desperately she needed me and the more I was able to be there for her, the more she trusted that I could be. And by that last few years together, we, we just had uh, um, intimacy of, of a level. I mean, we were always a very intimate couple, but it, it got to a level that it had not been before. And those final months when I was nursing her um, were among the tenderest times that we'd had together. Um, the fact that you'd been a nurse did that um, did that become irrelevant? Did did it sort of help? Um, um, I I've dealt with a lot of stuff as a nurse. Physically, um, which came in stood me in good stead, perhaps. But when when it's someone you love, mm. I mean, I, I I was an effective nurse and I was caring, but at. 11 o'clock at night or whenever my shift ended, I went home yeah. and those people ceased to be particularly real to me because it was my job to be caring and patient while I was with them. And when the person you love most is desperately ill and eventually dying, I don't know that it makes an awful lot of difference that you've got certain skills because there's, there's something else in the room with you, which is that, that love under threat. You were there when she died, but you were asleep. Um, at least I get that from the poem yeah. wrote, the time you chose. Yes. Um, it's a devastating poem. Can you read that? And yeah. Tell us about that experience, what followed. Um, Eva was, um, she spent the last six months of her life, she was very briefly out of hospital, um, but wasn't well enough to come home to Scotland, so, so we sort of stayed near the hospital. But most of the time she was in the hospital and I was in the room with her. Um, there was a sort of, one of those airport reclining chair things that sort of turns into a bed. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I had that set up next to her bed. Um, and she, her peripheral neuropathy by the end was so bad that she couldn't, do the call buzzer thing. So I, I would be sleeping, but I'd be very mindful of any um, noise. And I would tend to her in the night because the, church, the, the nurses had no way of knowing when she would need something. Anyway, this is called The Time You Chose, which is near the end of the first section of the book. It's divided into two sections, one while she's still alive and the second section when she no longer is. It was a smallish space and we lay close together. No doubt to some extent we breathed each other's breath. The angle of my chair in tandem to your bed meant that I couldn't see your face although I was an arm's length from your head. I dozed the hour was late. You were, I'm almost certain, unaware 
that I was even there. I dozed. You were not dead. The bedclothes rose and fell. You were helpless and scary, like a bear in labor, like a newborn baby. For twenty minutes, thirty maybe, my eyes were closed. That was the time you chose. Mm. Go straight to the end of the book um, and give us Lucency's two. You worked covertly, nurturing by stealth. You lifted people up, nudged them to transcend their limitations in sickness and in health. Those you assisted looked around to thank you, but you'd hide. When your influence began to spread too far, you died. I still hear your whisper in my ear. Let's be going. If I could scan this planet with x-rays that detect the presence of your timely interventions, I'm sure I'd find them in places you would not expect. You're dead, I know, and it is not for me to show you death is not the end. But you left lucencies of grace secreted in the world, still glowing. Michelle, we've run out of um, the first eight, but I, I, I really do want you to read one on my auxiliary list. Um, you wrote this one actually before the sequence. Um, it's a poem I love, Old Bird Not Very Well, it's on page three. It was written in 1999, long before Eva's illness, um, yeah. but you read it to her oncologist years later. Um, there's almost something premonitory about it. Read it yes. to us and tell us about it. Yeah. Um, this was something I actually witnessed in Fern, where, where I was living. Um, and rather than telling Eva about it, I, I, I wrote the poem to share with her. Um, it's one of the few decent poems that I wrote before Eva's illness and death. By the side of the road she stands, old bird, not very well. Will she cross? Yes, perhaps, in a bit, when the tiredness passes. I walk as if on eggshell to delay the flit of her wings. But closer by, step by step, then eye to eye, I see there will be no such thing. This bird is waiting patiently to die. I'm in awe of seeing a bird like this, standing upright in extremis. We think of birds in two states only, dead already, death-defying, feathered carnage, or still flying. Finding her, I know I've stumbled on a moment in a million, a moment even ornithologists may never witness, an old bird on the point of dying. Humbled, I intrude on her distress, her mute, attentive helplessness. I sit with her a while, a hundred times her size. My shoe heel comes to rest inches from her breathing breast. My shadow lassos her personal space, all that remains of her domain. Yesterday, the unbounded sky, today, only a fringe of dirt for massive cars to pass. One loose feather, scarcely bigger than her eye, flaps passive as they rustle by. She keeps eerily still on the very edge of no longer being a sparrow, on the brink of no longer thinking birdie thoughts. Thank you. Final question from me, Michelle, before we open it to the audience. Tell us about 
the experience of the poems coming to you because the some of them just came you had to work on some can can you describe how it started um about 10 days before eva died um she was completely her body was completely colonized by plasmacytomas plasmacytomas are the sort of thing which a lot of you would have to google and having googled it you would regret mm. having googled it because it is horrifying <coughs> anyway her body was taken over by these things <coughs> and um i wrote a poem called nipples nipples all over you and she was too sick by then for me to share poems with her even if it had been appropriate to share with someone who's in that situation a poem about what's happening to her um and i wrote that one and another one um called cowboys about cleaning her teeth and those were the the two poems that i wrote while she was still alive albeit barely and then um she died and very very soon after after her death many poems started coming to me and i had no conception of of writing a collection of poetry or anything like that but it given that the poems were coming to me it it felt perverse not to write them down um and i could easily have just put them away and not shared them with the rest of the world i did i did actually write for 25 years in my earlier career without submitting anything without offering it to the public so i i know what it is to write something and just put it away and i could have done that with these but in the end i felt that um it wasn't just me getting something off my chest that there was something there that other people could relate to um that the the poems could be useful and that has been validated a few times already i i i read a poem called you were ugly on radio 4 which is what it says i mean the the cancer really fucked her over and um she was very transformed by it and it's a brutal poem but it's very very frank do you want and to read it i, I think these, i think these people have probably had enough no no they haven't um, i can tell they're attend <laughs> they're wrapped give it to us um and then we'll right, put the lights up um <clears throat> and tell us about the what happened with the poem yeah um well i can tell you about what happened when you first, broadcast it be, yeah, be, yeah, um yeah. immediately you know virtually as soon as the the broadcast went out um someone contacted the station and said my wife had i forget what sort of cancer his wife had but it 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 very seriously transformed her and he he'd had those feelings he had wanted to say those things or or raise those things and he felt it was forbidden that you 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 just can't say that mm. a, about your partner about the woman you love um it's it it's just completely out of order it, you're under enormous pressure to say well to me she was mm. always the most mm. beautiful woman in the world and you know cancer has a way of turning someone into someone who is no mm-hmm. longer the most beautiful woman in the world and he he felt such a a weight lifted that someone had actually said it mm-hmm. and i hope that you know that the the poems can play that role for some people you were ugly you were ugly at the end you knew it and i knew it bald bloated piggy-eyed your flaccid arms bruised black your belly mildewed with malignancies your vulva and eyelids hairless your pupils crossed and sightless your breasts weighing down your heartbeat your bedbound body 75 kilos of spoiling meat 
Now, choosing photos for your funeral, I see again how beautiful you were, how routinely, ravishingly lovely, how graceful in the flesh, how happy in your skin. I called you gorgeous at the end. All lovers have names for each other that are not their names. Gorgeous was mine for you. It wasn't true in those days before you finally let yourself go. You knew it and I knew it. You were ugly. But not now. Not now. We have the lights up, thank you, and there will be a, a wandering mic. Um, I don't quite know how you want to play this, whether you want to ask Michelle or someone there for a poem or make a point. Um, it's the floor's yours. Yep, and there, yep, yep. Hi, um, my question was um, slightly stepping back from the time of the poetry, because um, I know Eva was your editor for the vast majority of your work. And um, I was wondering, obviously she was a huge influence, and a lot of the protagonists of your novels, your short stories, are female. Mm. And how much of that was trying to impress her, or how much was an influence from her, from this perspective? Well, I mean, one of the reasons she got together with me, I think, is that I had a certain relationship with women um, that made it possible for us to be together. So, so that was pre-existing. But um, her influence on my work was so varied, so multifarious. But um, what amused me about my final novel, The Book of Strangely Things, is that the female character in that, Bea, is, is probably more based on her than any of my characters had been. And she was really irritated by Bea. She found her a pain in the ass, do-gooder, you know. Um, and I had to tweak Bea so that she would be acceptable to Eva, um, so that she wouldn't piss Eva off as much. Um, and I, I, you know, I had to quietly smile about that. This this woman who was a Christian and a, a do-gooder. Um, was not to Eva's taste, even though she herself was probably the most Christian person I ever knew, even though she no longer had faith, and definitely felt that she was on this planet to um, to make life better for people. And it was Lady in the Front who wanted to yep. ask something. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm a bit closer to your mouth. Sorry, yes, yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. I've normally got a very loud voice, but I'm quite overcome. <laughs> um, it's just so moving, and I'm so glad the you're writing this, honestly, Michelle, because, and it's not, I'm just saying my own experience of being diagnosed with breast cancer, and I'm not saying this because of that, except I, I would like you to read, because the one poem in the book is this, not the last time. Um, the right. second last mm. time is yeah. so mm. important for my husband and I. All right. um, but the thing is I want to say for Eva and yourself is the profound honesty and the honesty mm. of grief and of living. I travel hopefully and, you know, it's not my, you know, you know, that is what it is. Mm -hmm. But I just want to thank you on behalf of Eva, which sounds terrible to say this, but I thank hope you. you know my sentiments. Um, but there's not enough, and Richard knows this, there's not enough spoken about grief and loss in our society and the love and the loss. And I'm kind of rambling. I just want to say I'll tell you, I'll thank, tell you, you. And I'll thank you. And not the last time mm. yeah, is yeah. so profound. Yeah, mm. I, I will read that. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, I'll tell Any you the story. Questions? When, when um, I was married before, and when I broke up with my first wife, and I would see people together, holding hands like that, I'd be full of 
bitterness and resentment, you know, do they have to do that in my face? Couldn't they go away and do that somewhere else? And just jealousy and, you know, why haven't I got that, etc. And that was in 86 or something, um, when I was 20, 26. And since Eva died, I see people together holding hands and this is even in the, in the first raw months of grief, when I first lost Eva. And I would think to myself, yes, they're both still alive, you know, that neither of them is dead yet, they've still got each other. Mm. And there was just a sense of, of joy that, you know, cancer hasn't yet killed everybody, because you, you <laughs> do have this sense of it stalking the world and just, mm. you know, eliminating mm. everybody. Um, just such a different relationship with... with seeing you know evidence of 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 love um the poem that you asked for is the second last time we never knew when it would be the last time it was important not to know we made love the second last time always the second last time as many times as time allowed. We'd go to bed and put our heads together, trying to find where you had gone. Your illness was a vast terrain, but somehow, again and again, we found you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Any, anyone else there? No? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing your thought, thoughts with us. And I'm sorry you had to compete with the music in the background. Um, I'm just wondering if this ex experience well, has made you... Be before you go on, I mean, illness and grief and impending loss when your partner is dying, it's always competing against stuff like that. You know, li <laughs> life is absurd. Mm -hmm. And that's one mm -hmm. of the things that people don't talk about mm -hmm. because... Even when they talk about grief and grieving, it's sort of got this halo of, you know, solemnity mm -hmm. around it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's ordinary stuff of life, you know, the, the musician doesn't stop playing just because you're dying of cancer. Anyway, go on. Yeah, no, I just <laughs> yeah. was curious to know if it made you think differently about the afterlife. <laughs> um, I, um, I don't believe I'm going to meet Eva again. Um, I'll be very surprised, pleasantly surprised. I don't believe I'm going to meet her again. Um, I scattered her ashes 10 days ago on the shores of Tarrell, which was the, the reason why I'm, I'm in Scotland. Uh, she fell in love with a particular farm in um, the northeast of Scotland. Uh, and that's where under the skin was set. And that's where she loved to walk along those, that shore where Italy also walked. And ten days ago, I scattered her ashes there uh, with her older son. I think we just scattered ash into the sea. I don't think she was there. It was a nice thing to do. It was an appropriate place to do it. Um, I think she had her time. And she made the most of it. I mean, she was good at enjoying life while she had it. Um, I, I don't believe she's up there watching. But I'm carrying her around in my behavior and in the way I relate to people. And that's... I mean, I'm sitting here with an ex-Bishop of Edinburgh, but I, I, to me, probably that's the only kind of immortality any of us can hope for, that we are carried around by others who... Mm. Yeah. 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 And... Um, I'm an old man, and one of your poems I was going to get you to read, I'm going to get you to do it. Um, <laughs> you look wistfully at old people like me who are still chugging on. I mean, I should have been gone ages ago. Well, um, um, and, uh, one of the conversations that Eva had with Richard, we, we, we met him on a train on the way to... Dundee. Dundee. Mm -hmm. And Eva basically told Richard she wanted him to do his, her funeral. Um, and they sort of thrashed it out, I think, between them in you know, the carriage. And because I was aware that Richard is not a youngster, and because, um, because Eva was obviously hoping to live for some time with, with this disease, 
Uh, it was getting a bit tense whether... <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah. Uh, it's, I have this thing now where someone tells me that their much-beloved father died or whatever at the age of 89. And I want to feel terribly sorry for them because they lost their dad. But another part of me, I can't help it, you know, mm. is thinking, well, fucking hell, he got to be <laughs> 89, you know, yeah. and yeah. Eva only got to 59. So there is that sort of read, read Well, we made it. It's on page 115. It's, and it's this man will have his way, won't he? Yeah, you? yeah. Um, <laughs> two old dears get on the train. They must be 80, might be 90, married more than half a century. He with hearing aid and oatmeal cardigan, his flesh all bone and Adam's apple. She with translucent skin, bird claw thin, breast cancer survivor, could well be, or just an elderly gamine. Briefly breathless, they locate their reservations and once settled, calm their respirations. Having won a dozen battles in the war with tickets, toilets, turnstiles, heavy luggage, narrow aisles, overpasses, tricky schedules read with the wrong glasses, they reward themselves with Scotrail tea and a shortbread shaped for two. The old man unlips his gnarly grin, leans forward, asks his wife, Are you okay? She smiles. My love, had you not died, but lived another 20, 30 years, these two old dears might have been us. Me, farting, manful as I lift your case up to where such things must go. You, sparse-haired, blue-veined, a remnant of the beauty you once were. Fellow travellers, even so. How sweet, as sweet as shortbread on my tongue, to earn the pity of the young. Yeah. <laughs> and it, yeah, that one there. Thank you. Are you still writing? And if so, what kind of thing? Um, Eva wrote a lot. I mean, she was a photographer and an artist, but she also wrote. Um, she didn't finish much. She did win um, the Neil Gunn Prize two years before I won it with a, with a short story. Um, but to get stories up to a high standard, you need to put the hours in, and she just didn't. She was a mother, she was a teacher. And it wasn't until the last years of her life that she got really serious about finishing those stories, and she just didn't have the time, didn't have the energy. So I want to finish them. I've finished four so far. Um, I want to get a collection together of stories by Eva and Michelle Faber, a, a true sort of fusion of, of those two people. I'm not aware that that's ever been done before, um, but I want to do it with her. And what's really cheered me about that project is that I've shown the stories that I have finished, which is four so far, to two writers. And the ratio of Eva's original prose to mine varies enormously in the four stories. In one story, she got it almost entirely to her satisfaction, 99% her prose, few editorial interventions by me. Another story is sort of 60-40, another's 40-60, another one's 85% my prose, 15% hers. Anyway, the two people that I've shown the stories to both had the same response, which was, these stories feel as if they're all coming from the same sensibility, and that sensibility is not yours. And mm. I'm so proud of that, I'm so happy mm. with that, and if I can maintain that for all the stories that I get round to, I'll be a very happy person. And, you know, of course, I can't be her, but I'll be something which is neither me nor her, a, a kind of magical third author. So that's one project. Another project is a biography of her, which I'm afraid is not for you guys, it's for the family. And I also want to write a book for younger readers, YAs as they call them, no more books for grown-ups. Um, and 
in the longer term, which I really should say, given that <coughs> my long-suffering editor Francis is sitting in the front row there, I do hope to write some more short stories, which, if they are of a sufficiently high standard, I would then put into a collection, and they would be my next Canongate book in 2033. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the strange and interesting, interesting fact is that when you met Eva, you'd been writing for ages, but you'd it never occurred to you to let anyone else read the stuff. Well, I would and read it to individuals. I mean, if someone said, yeah, so but you write you, stories, you weren't giving it. You, you once said to me that you had a kind of maybe you would die and it would be discovered and the world would realize what an unknown genius. Uh, had uh, had a, yeah, yeah. I mean, many she people. She got you to go public, didn't she? She, she, did, she persuaded me to go public. Um, <coughs> I kept arguing. I feel a bit embarrassed because I've told this story before and I like the idea of people who come to my events hearing things that they've never heard before. So apologies if you've heard this story before, but um, we had these conversations where I would say, look, it's, it's like there's a god of literature who looks down on the work that you produce and grades it. And if it makes the grade, then fine. And if not, then it needs more work. And it's just between you and the god of literature that we don't need actually a reading public. And she would say that's complete bullshit. Uh, a, a book doesn't actually exist until people read it. Oh, right. Uh, yep, yep. And, and we'd have these conversations until deep into the night, mm. and then I would go to sleep peacefully, and she'd have to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning to go and teach. Um, but eventually she mm. won, and I did offer the work and put it out there, and hence we are here together. And the omnipotent reader probably all enjoys it as well. <laughs> That's, you would know more about that than I yeah. do. Yeah, I once did. Anyone else? Yep, up yeah. at the back there. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us. They've been very profound. Um, I'm looking at these wonderful images. Are you going to do anything with these? Are they to be published, an exhibition? or um, Did she not want them to be seen? Or? In, the, in the later years of her life, she became interested in being known as an artist, but it takes quite some years to get a reputation as an artist, and she did not have those years. Um, I had thought of the Wellcome Trust, that sort of intersection between medicine and art, but their exhibitions tend to be more sort of work by lots and lots of people on a particular theme. They don't really do individual artists. Um, I had a visit recently from the director of the Scottish National Portrait Gallery who was very taken with Eva's work and it's looking as if there might be an article on her featuring a number of her images in a magazine that, that is produced by some organization whose name I've sadly forgotten. Um, and also uh, next year there may be an exhibition of a selection of, of her work. I'm, I'm hoping that in time, I mean, you see, this was what I had on my memory stick. I'm, um, she did hugely more work than this. Uh, this just happened to be what I had with me, and almost as an afterthought, I thought this could be back projected. Um, I, I hope that I live long enough to curate, if you like, her work and, and try and get it out there somehow. Um, there are a lot of talented artists who never get recognition. She may be fated to be one of them. I don't know. I can only hope for the best. Um, I'd, I'd, I don't believe that the reason why I think her work has value is that she was my wife and I loved her. Uh, I'd, I think if I saw her work in a gallery, I'd think that's very, very interesting. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do my best. Can I have a question from this side of the room? Anyone? Yep, there. Thank you. <coughs> uh, we've got a bit of time. I think we're the last show tonight, so um, if anyone wants to... Yep. Awkward placing. Um, I'm just really interested that you said you hadn't written poetry for decades, that at least that you thought was worth publishing. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, why, why at this point was it that poetry is what came out? Um, well, my final novel, The Book of Strangely Things, already deals with loss and deals with the fragility of the body. I mean, how many of you have, have, have read The Book of Strangely Things? 
quite quite a few. So so you know it's it is about our flesh and and what happens to it um, and how grateful we should be for it when it's intact. Um, so in a way, I'd already dealt with that in fiction to some degree while she was alive, and we were both dealing with those issues together. Um, once she died, there was no way I was going to be writing fiction. I'm not an autobiographical writer. I, I make stuff up, and that stuff gets suffused with the things that I consider important, including things that I've gone through. But I'm, I'm not the sort of writer who would immediately, you know, in the year after my wife's death, write a book about a guy whose wife is dying of... It's, that's not how I work. Um, and somehow the poems, they just felt much more direct and frank and much more sort of it is what it is thing. Um, it just felt appropriate. I'd, that's not to say that other writers shouldn't write books, write novels which have a dying wife in them immediately after their own wife dies. That's up to them. I couldn't have done it. Mm. But the poems felt right. Anyone else? Yep. Yeah, thank you. <coughs> Uh, thank you very much for your, for your frankness. I, I share some experience of, of what you've gone through. I think my wife also had cancer, lived for three years, and I'm also a writer. I write short stories, but after she died, I tried to write poetry, and per perhaps for the same reasons, because you go through a, a process of a journey which has a different impact on you in terms of your literary uh, awareness, I think, of how how one responds. And I think the thing I learned most in the process was the uniqueness of grief. That I found, although you would talk to people, people would have ideas that yes. they expected you to realize were a sharing commonality. Yeah, yeah. And I'd say, no, my grief is totally mine and yes. unique to me. Yes. And for me, I focused on, on wanting to write about the experience of the process rather than the anger that one yeah. feels, and there's yeah. always a, f a feeling of anger. And I wanted to ask whether anger was, was uh, an issue for you in writing some well, of your poems. I'm, I really do feel now that I've read enough poems, uh, but there is a poem in the collection called Don't Hesitate to Ask, which is incandescently angry. Um, there is that. I, I agree with you that, that grief is very individual, um, not just when one loses a partner, even when people lose their parents, depending on what sort of parent the parent was, whether they were lovely to be around or abusive and you came to some sort of accommodation with them, and then when they were old and no longer dangerous, you got to a different phase with them where you were blah. There's, there's, all those lives, all those individual lives, m make up pack human packages which are then torn asunder by grief, and the grief is completely different for each of those people. Um, and yeah, this, this thing of the stages of grieving, d whatever it's supposed to be, ang denial, anger, bargaining, whatever. Uh, Eva didn't go through that stuff with her illness. Um, she went straight to the practicality, you know, how are we going to handle when I'm dying kind of thing. Um, it's, I think it makes people feel safer when they're relating to you as the grieving person if they can somehow feel that they already know something about it and they can advise you or counsel you. Whereas in fact no one can help you, nothing can help you. You're utterly, utterly alone because this thing that you absolutely need in your life is gone and no one can bring it back for you and you can't bring it back um, and people know that but in their helplessness they want to do something for you and they can't anyway I'm, I'm rambling perhaps you should hear from from another person we've got time anyone else yep there we are thank you um, uh, hi Michelle I saw you in Dumbarton uh, a year or so ago when you were promoting your last book 
and you read a wonderful poem um, about a darling dress, but you've yes. already said you're not going to do any more no. poems. And that is a long um, poem, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, but I also wanted to ask you, at that time, you, you, you took um, a pair of Eva's shoes with you yes. wherever you went and photographed them. And what, what became of that? And, and was, it, was it cathartic? Or um, were, were no. you trying to keep her with you? I um, I was taking the shoes to places where I felt that she would have loved to accompany me. Um, and as time has gone by, I've taken the shoes to fewer places. I took the shoes to Auckland uh, earlier this year um, because she had never been to Auckland. And I took some lovely pictures of the shoes in various places in, in Auckland. And I took um, a series of pictures of the shoes last week in my empty house in Fern because I'm moving at, at long last from that house that we shared uh, and the removalists had been and it looked the way houses look when the removalists have been and taken everything away and it just felt right to have her shoes in that emptied space uh, and I don't know if those will be the last of the shoe pictures. Um, they could well be. But one day perhaps I'll pull an essay together which is illustrated by those pictures or there might be an art magazine. I don't, I don't know what the fate of those pictures will be. Um, but uh, see again this is... I, I grieved for her and these feelings were very real, but on another level, I'm an artist, so I'm looking for ways mm. that these things make sense artistically. And those photographs were very carefully set up, and I am proud of them. I think they're strong photographs. So one day, I hope that they will also have, have a forum. One more, and then we'll go. Um, yep, at the back there, thank you. How philosophically did you mean that? What? No, I meant, I, I, I meant we'll go to the signing tent. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. Not the one in the sky, the one along the corridor, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wondered about your reading as well as your writing. Sorry, where, oh, there so, you are. Yeah, right, okay. yeah, yeah. I wondered about what you're reading as well as what you've been writing since Eva's death. Uh, I've, for the last 25 years or so, I've read very little fiction. Um, one of the reasons I used to review books for The Guardian was that I felt that at least a, a couple of times a year I should read a book from cover to cover and really think about it, because otherwise I wouldn't. Um, Eva was a huge reader, and she would, uh, she would urge me to read a chapter or a scene from a particular book that she was enjoying, uh, often Canongate books sent for free. Uh, and we would then discuss that author um, on all levels. We'd, we'd discuss the, um, the, the, the pacing of the prose and the point of view and the rate at which information is revealed or withheld, how good or bad that particular writer is at female characters, all those things that you think about while you're reading a book. And we'd have this wonderful discussion that would last for hours and I'd be very happy with the discussion that we'd had but then I wouldn't read the rest of the book completely uninterested in how it ended or anything. So I'm, I'm not that much of a fiction reader. And since Eva died, I've read, I think, four or five novels. And two of them I read out of sheer politeness because I was appearing with the authors and they had read all my work and I didn't want to be in a position of saying, look, actually, I, I don't really know who you are or what you do. <laughs> and I'm not going to know who you are because I'm, I'm never going to read anything. So I, I, I read their books. If it hadn't been for that, I would have read, you know, three books or something in the last two years. I mean, I'm very grateful to all of you for reading fiction. It, 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 it's, it's um, yeah, very gratifying. But I, I turn to music. That's where I go when I, when I need that solace and when I need that inspiration. I don't go to the word. I go to sound. Michelle, I think we'll bring it to a close. I want to guide you to um, the book signing tent which is next door and I hope that many of you will come and have a book signed 
It's a, a beautiful book, one to be treasured and used again, and it's clearly a book that is going to help all sorts of people. Thank you for giving us yourself, your love, your sorrow, your longing. I'm sorry you're leaving Scotland. I hope we'll see you from time to time. I, I still have a flat in Edinburgh, and I will keep that flat on, and I have a couple of dear friends in Edinburgh. Um, the Highlands, I lived there for 23 years, which is longer than a lot of very famous Scottish authors who are terribly Scottish have lived, <laughs> have lived in Scotland. Uh, it is very common that as soon as a Scottish author has an even mildly successful book, they immediately go off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, so, you know, 23 years, but um, the house is, was very, very lonely without her mm. and very, very impractical. It was in the middle of nowhere, which is very beautiful. And it was lovely when we were a nation of two together, providing all that we needed in that space. But, you know, four miles from the nearest shops, I was doing it on the bicycle in all weathers and I almost got killed by a deer. I, I won't go into that, we don't have time. Um, but yeah, it, it, the time came when I really needed to be in a town where I could just walk to the shop and buy some groceries. Walk to the, you know, it, I just, the time came for that. Uh, and to be nearer to lots of lovely friends who I have who live in London. So, I mean, I'm not living in London. I couldn't possibly afford it, but I'm, I'm closer. I'm closer. Um, so that is why. I, that's a bit long and rambly, but I'm feeling sort of guilty because... No, 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 I didn't. Um, I, I wasn't meaning to put that No, no, no. I mean, no, no. When, when the Book of Strange New Things won two Saltai Prizes last year, I was so moved because I hadn't expected... I knew, I'd, I knew that the book Strangely Things had won the, um, um, the novel uh, of the year. I didn't know it had won the book of the year. They hadn't mm. told me that. Mm. And the, the, the affection coming from those people in that space mm -hmm. and the sense of welcome and, and of me being part of Scotland, part of the Scottish literary scene was so moving and was so lovely. And I sort of feel traitorous yeah. at this point you know. We'll give you a passport. It's all right. Yeah. <laughs> Please thank yeah. Michelle for a wonderful evening. <coughs> this wonderful man. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.